You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses... Uh, today we're talking about verses 18 and 19, but I want to start in verse 17. However, if you do not have a Bible... And, uh, and you don't prefer to open your phone up because you're so tempted to check Twitter. Um, if you need a physical Bible, we'll give you one for free. You could just use it today and leave it on your chair, or you could take it home and read it, which would be awesome. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, raise your hand. Ushers will come forward and just throw you one. They're real small, so they can actually throw them across the aisle. Um, and just, just keep it up. Uh, ushers will, uh, will be able to, to get those to you in, in a couple of uh, couple minutes or a couple seconds. Or something like that. Maybe I caught all the ushers off guard. No one knows. Um, all right. First Corinthians chapter 1. Now before I read, just let me catch you up on what's going on. You have to remember that this, uh, what we call a book, is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. Now we said before that First Corinthians is not even really First Corinthians. It's Second Corinthians because in a little bit we'll get to where Paul says, I've written you before on this. So this is actually the second letter. And then 2 Corinthians, he writes that he wrote a letter after what we call 1 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians is actually 4 Corinthians. Now, I talked about that like two weeks ago, and my whole point wasn't to confuse you, but to tell you and show you that we're entering into an ongoing conversation. This is a conversation between Paul who planted or started, uh, if you don't know what a church planted, it was a startup church, okay? Just think of it like that. Who started the church in Corinth who was the pastor of the church in Corinth, who raised up elders and pastors in the church in Corinth, and then moved on to Ephesus to start a church in Ephesus. Paul was, a, was apostolic that way. He went and planted churches. Um, it would almost be as if I came here and planted this church, and then after the church was healthy, I moved on. Now, that's not my plan, by the way. Um, I don't ever want to leave the city, but um, we don't, I don't know what God has. But anyway, so it'd be like that, like if I had it in my heart to go, I'm going to plant this church, get it healthy, started, going, viable, raise up elders, and then peace out and go start a church in Modesto or something like that. God forbid. Um, <laughs> something like that. It would be like that, okay? That's what Paul does here. He, um, he goes to Corinth, uh, a, 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 a cultural hub where uh, uh, education and entrepreneurship and, um, uh, and sport collide. And, um, and commerce collide, and, and, and he starts and he plants a church there. And uh, when he leaves, the church gets kind of wacky. The church has problems. We, we, we titled this uh, series um, Stories from a Fledgling Urban Church. It's just starting, and it's, it's, it's still fledgling. It's still stumbling along. And so Paul's writing to correct a lot of stuff that's gone wrong in the church. And so we've had to do a lot of background stuff in here. I've been using words that I have to learn throughout the week um, just to get background, Greek words and uh, geographical words that I don't, I don't know before, I didn't know before this series, like just to show that this is an ongoing conversation that we're entering into. Today, this morning, I want to look at um, the title of today's sermon is The Message of the Cross. Paul now, if you guys remember from last week talking about unity, starts moving into what we're to be unified around. We are to be unified around the cross of Jesus Christ, not just the cross as a symbol, not just the cross as the event, but what the cross says, its message, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So, if you have a Bible, 
Uh, let me start in verse 17. We covered verse 17 last week. I'm going to read through 25, though we're only going to talk about verses 18 and 19. And the reason why I'm doing that is to give you context so you know the flow. And actually, if you pay attention, the way that Paul writes this section is beautiful. It has balance and prose. It's just, it's just a beautiful piece of, uh, um, of Scripture. Verse 17, and then I'll pray. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. What he's saying there is, at the end of me preaching, I didn't want you to say, oh my gosh, what a preacher. I wanted you to say, oh my gosh, what a savior. For the message of the cross, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greek look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Someone say amen. That is such a beautiful passage of Scripture. And you know Paul's smart because you, you read it like a hundred times, you're going, Wait, it's beautiful, but I, I, what is it saying? And that's kind of how uh, Paul wrote it, and that's, we'll, we'll try to um, unpack some of that, but let's pray first. God, thank you for this morning. I ask, oh Lord, that the eloquence of um, today would not be found in... Um, the beauty of worship musically or um, even my voice and preaching now, but in the message of the cross, that it's beauty, it's simplicity, it's message, it's power. It has enough power to save God. We don't have to add to that, God. And I pray that um, the power of the cross and the power of that gospel would save. And then it would keep us in this process of being saved, as it says. Save us, Lord. I pray that you would illuminate what the cross is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> for us in the West, for the most part, uh, I, I know I say that when I say that, uh, what I'm going to say next is for the most part, the cross is not offensive. Look, look at this image. This is an image of, the, of, a, of a cross. Now, this, when I put this up, it's just not offensive. Maybe four or five of you might be offended by this image. But for the most part in the West, this image is not offensive. It's actually pretty tranquil. When the image comes up, we're like, oh, the cross. We see this image everywhere, this icon everywhere. It's on hospitals and flags and on lapels and on jewelry, on buildings and on religious buildings or otherwise. Now, because of that, the cross is pretty sterilized in our mind. We don't imagine flesh hanging from this cross, blood dripping from this cross, a pool of blood underneath it with certain parts of the body that birds have pecked out and pecked away. Like, we don't picture a cross like that when we see it. We don't see torture. We don't see shame. We don't see evil. We see, oh, the wonderful cross. We forget that in the Roman world, the cross was the worst way to die. The cross was an instrument of death. 
And not just that, but the cross was a shocking image in the ancient world. This image conjured up evil and shame and rejection and punishment. Today in the West, we've, we've, we've um, because of the beauty of what Christ has done, we have beautified the cross. And though that's a good thing, because we, we, there's power in the cross, what that's done is it's disconnected us from the first century. When we read here in Ephesians, just a second, or First uh, Corinthians, just a second ago, it sterilizes us to the point where when Paul is saying, well, it's foolishness to some of you people. We're going, well, how can the cross be foolishness? It's tranquil, it's loving, it's beautiful. But to them, it was foolishness. Now, in your mind, if you can for a second, think of an image of torture and shame, rejection and punishment. What is an image that represents that? Maybe something like a Hiroshima cloud. Imagine, why would anyone wear a necklace of that? Imagine if we worshiped at that, at a station that had this big mushroom cloud that represented death of thousands of people. Or an Auschwitz gas chamber. Or maybe even a little bit more modern and closer to home, a plane going into the Twin Towers. Imagine that sort of image and what that image represents. When you start to do that, and then on top of that, we wore that image around our necks, or we wore that image and we said we worship at the feet of that image. What if I said even that image saves us? That would be insane. If I came up here and showed you an image of the Twin Towers and planes going into them, and all of that represented, I'm like, we worship at the foot of this image, you guys would call it that foolish, insane, culturally insensitive, and some of you would want to fight me. And if I took that message on the road, I would surely get beat up. This is exactly what Paul did. The cross conjured up images like that. The cross for them was torture, death, defeat, evil. And Paul traveled with this message about the cross, and he got beat up a lot. A lot to where even historically when he would roll into town, he would, he would roll in with this limp and be all beat up because there, there's a part in, in the book of Acts when he goes into a city, preaches the gospel, they beat him up, stone him, drag him out of the city, and they're going, uh, he's dead. Let's walk away. And then Paul's like, and he wakes up. Paul just like comes out of it and he goes, and, he, and just the funniest part now, he gets up and goes, he goes right back into the city to preach again. Like they beat him up. Dude, you just got stoned with rocks and punched, knocked out unconscious and they left you for dead. And then you get up and go, I gotta go preach again. Like Paul what, physically bore the, the, the scars of preaching this cross. This cross is offensive. It's foolishness. This place cross was a place reserved for criminals, anti-heroes, and Paul's message, the early church, not just Paul, but the early church's message was Christ the King crucified. This message got him beat up, riots started around it, but mostly people just said it was foolish. The Greek word for foolish is this Greek word morea, or are you supposed to roll your R's a little bit, morea, kind of sounds Hispanic, but the, the, Greek, the, the root word in Greek is preserved in our English language in the word moronic. The cross is moronic. There, there are people that think that even today. That, that Christian message is so stupid. This is exactly what Paul is dealing with. 
The cross to them was moronic. Here's why it's moronic. Here's why it was foolish. To the Jews, the Jews, Paul says, they stumble over it. The reason why the Jews stumble over the cross of Christ is because their Messiah, as prophesied in the Old Testament, what they have come to believe as they studied their scriptures that the Messiah was supposed to triumph over the Romans. Paul, uh, the Messiah was supposed to triumph over the enemies of Israel and not be crushed under its power. So to them, the cross was, was, was a stumbling block. Well, what do you mean? Our Messiah comes to rule and to reign and to crush the powers that oppress Israel. Not to die under its power, but to crush its power. So to them, it was a stumbling block. Uh, to the Greeks, Paul says, they dismiss it as moronic or foolishness because they're too smart to believe something that's stupid. But for those whom God has called, Paul says, beautifully, both Jew and Greek, everyone that God has called Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. What Paul is doing in this section of the letter is showing them the beauty of the cross by showing them how the world thinks the cross is foolish. You guys think the, the world thinks the cross is foolish, but let me tell you, just by them thinking it's foolish, it is the power of God. Now, one of the reasons I read verse 17 and 18 together as we began this morning is that the Bible translators and your, your Bibles and my Bible uh, with good intentions, put these often sometimes unhelpful divisions in the headings in the Bible. And so in your Bible, as you're reading, there's a break between verses 17 and 18. Now, when you break between verses 17 and 18, you lose the symmetry of what Paul is writing. Let me put it up on the screen so you, have, you see it all together. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, verse 17, but to preach the gospel, not with words, that word in Greek is logos. Not with words, logos, of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the message, or the logos, same word, some of your translations even say for the word of the cross, so it, it balances out in English. He did not send me with words of human wisdom, but with the word of the cross. The word and the word, the word of human wisdom and the word of the cross, the logos of both of them. Verse 17, not with, I didn't come with words or logos or rhetoric or reason of human wisdom. I didn't come with a shining resume and beautiful, eloquent speech like you're used to for the word, the message, the rhetoric, the reason of the cross is completely foolishness to those who are perishing. See, there is a word, a logos, that belongs to the wisdom of this world, and there is a word, a logos, that belongs to the cross, and they are mutually exclusive. There is a way that you interpret wisdom. There is a way that you interpret how to make decisions. There is a way that you interpret success and fortune and beauty. There is a way that you interpret all of that. When you make decisions about like, where do I work or who do I marry or all these things, you look for wisdom. You need to look for someone who has wisdom. There's a way that you and I and the world does wisdom, but there's a way of the cross that's completely different. It cuts against, against all of that. That's what Paul is saying. The word, the message of the cross, is antithetical to the message of the world. And this is what Paul does here. He compares the two and shows how the cross is the power of God. It's the word of God. It's the power of God. And the way that Paul says this is brilliant. 
It's a bit ironic. It's a bit cheeky. Almost teasing them. Paul is saying to them, there is a way that you see power. It comes in the form of eloquent rhetoric, beautifully crafted arguments, a very sophisticated style of speaking that entertains the ear and brings glory to the speakers. Remember we talked about this last week. They were called sophists. We basically define sophists as a bunch of Daniel Day Lewis's walking around. Like this beautiful speech. They took on the character. They were, they, were, they were method actors to the nth degree. They would stand there and they would begin to eloquently entertain the ear and everyone would follow them. There is a way that they interpreted power, the power of speech, the power of rhetoric. And Paul says the gospel isn't that. But here's the irony. The way that Paul made this point in the letter was by crafting a paragraph of such wonderfully flowing and balanced rhetoric that you have to assume he was teasing them. He was saying, listen, the gospel does not come with eloquent words, and what he does is he uses eloquent words to tell them that. He, he, he crafts a paragraph that flows so beautifully that it can, it can hold its ground with any sophist, any. And they would read that and were like, oh my gosh, Wow. And what Paul's saying is, when I came to you, I didn't come like this. But I want you to know, I can come like this. Paul was flexing his muscles. Just a little bit. Just a little flex. Just a little check. Just like, hey, listen, I can do that. I can play your rhetoric game too. Do you think I'm stupid? I can play your rhetoric game. In fact, here it goes. And the way I'm going to play it is by showing you the cross is not couched in rhetoric. But I'll use rhetoric to show you that. When I was a, a, a freshman in high school, I um, started to, uh, I, I tried out for football, and um, I, wasn't, I wasn't really good at football, because I don't, I don't really have, I can't see out, out of the helmet. I don't know why. I just, it was hard, <laughs> and I didn't know where the ball was. I didn't know where people were. I didn't know who my teammates were. I would just get hit, and, um, but I, I went out. Though. I'm like, I want to I I do this, but our favorite time was when we went to the gym, and we worked out, and I was, I, as a freshman, I'm like, oh, I'm getting, like, stronger, and and I always thought the strongest man ever was my, like my dad. And so when I was starting to work out as a freshman, I remember my dad's left-handed, but he would arm wrestle me right-handed. And I was like, Dad, let's arm wrestle. And he would, he, he would arm wrestle with me, but what he would always do is he would, he would let me ch- almost win. Every time, I'm like, this old man is going down. Like, I... I've been bench pressing and power, like all these things. I got this. I've been drinking Gatorade. This, this guy's old. And I just, when I think I have him, he just, without even trying, bam. This is kind of what Paul's doing. He's like, without even trying, I can show you up. I can flex my muscles. Don't, don't think. But what I've done is when I came among you, I took a posture of humility. Because I didn't want you to follow this message thinking, why well, I follow this message because that message was so good. Because it was couched in so many, so many good words. This is what Paul is getting after. In Corinth, at that time, people loved powerful teachings. They loved powerful teachings so much so that people would follow a teacher based on the content of their message. The power of their message. Power meaning how good and polished it was. Over, not necessarily because of the content, but because of its power. Kind of like um, mass market, the mass market likes commercials. 
when we see commercials and when we see the commercials next week when our team's in the Super Bowl, um, we actually really don't care what they're selling, do we? Just to entertain us for 45 seconds. And if you entertain us for 45 seconds, we might like your product. We don't care what you're selling. Just entertain us. This is, this is how a commercial campaign can turn around any company. This is how a commercial campaign can turn around Old Spice or Dos Equis. It's like, isn't that cheap Mexican beer? And isn't that my grandfather's aftershave? <laughs> like, not anymore. We made you laugh. You're like, you did. And I love you for it. And I don't care if you're selling cheap stuff. And I don't care if you're selling my grandpa's aftershave. I don't even know what aftershave is. I don't care. I'm buying that stuff. This, we're, we're the same. This is exactly what Sophists did. They didn't care. What, what were they saying? Who cares what they're saying? Look at the way they said it. Paul said, I'm not going to you like that. I'm not going to go to you and start to tell you a message that you're going to believe just because I said it in a good way, in an eloquent way, in a powerful way. The cross, the message of the cross had enough power on its own. And so I came simply. I came to you and I just said, this is the message of the cross. And that saved you. The message of the cross is that Christ died. The message of the cross is that Paul came and preached this message and they believed and then they were saved. Paul is saying that with the gospel, it wasn't couched in all these beautiful things when he preached it. Now, does verse 17 make sense now? Look at verse 17. For Christ sent me to preach the gospel. He didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. Does that make sense now? Why he said that? Because when I came to you, I didn't, I didn't come as a, as a 45-second commercial. I didn't come as a sophist. I came simply. And the reason why I came simply is I didn't want to empty the cross of his power. The cross has all the power in itself. You didn't believe in the gospel because of my eloquence. The cross had a message of its own and its own work to do. And it was that message that was preached. And that message released power to save. So when so then Paul says that this message that he preaches is foolishness to some and power to others. So now he's continuing this argument on. He's keeping that word message. Now he's moving forward with it. He's like, this message that I preach is both foolishness to some and power to the others. The message of the cross to the perishing, as it says on the screen. To the perishing, the cross is foolishness. To those who are perishing, the cross is like, whatever, it's moronic. But to those who are being saved, the, the being is a very important word. Those who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. Notice it's not the cross per se that divides. Notice it says that the message of the cross divides. It's not the event of the cross. It's what the cross says. That message, the meaning of the cross, the truth of the cross is what divides. Now, what is the message of the cross? that people dismiss as foolish. Two things. Two things. This is the message of the cross, and I want to be as clear as I possibly can, because if you're new in here and you're going, what is the message of the cross? What is the thing that you guys are all about as a church, a Christian church? This is what it's founded on. The message of the cross first is that the Messiah to the Jews, or the argument is the Logos to the Greeks, was condemned to die. Christ was condemned to die. Jews believed 
that the anointed powerful Messiah was condemned to die a bloody death on, the Ro- on a Roman cross. This is the hero of the Jewish story. And this, to them, was antithetical to the way that that Messiah was to be presented. But the way that Christ was presented to the Greeks, because they didn't have Old Testament background of Messiah, um, John wrote in John, one, in, first, in John chapter 1, he connected Jesus with Logos. Now, Logos to the Greeks was a beautiful rhetoric. It was true wisdom. It, it was true reason. And so John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, and Logos with God, and it was God. And then it says, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. This Logos took on flesh. To the Jews, Messiah took on flesh. Now, why was this Logos or this Messiah condemned to die? The message of the cross is that Christ had to die. Now, listen. Very carefully. The message of the cross is that Christ had to die because you and I are wicked and separated from God. Now, I know you don't, a lot of us don't like to hear that. Like, wicked? Whoa, man. Like, chill out about that. You and I are wicked. Try as we did, we could never reach God. Our hands are too dirty, our hearts are too vile, our heads are too filled with ourselves. Every world religion is man trying to reach God. The message of the cross is that you can't and you couldn't. So God came down. God humbled himself, even to the point of death, to redeem, to pay our ransom, to get you out of slavery, to pay the debt of your sin and your separation from God. His body was torn that you can be made whole. That's what shalom means, peace, wholeness, that you could be made whole before God. He, Jesus Christ, was separated from the Father that we can be one with God. The message of the cross, the message of the gospel is that we get to be with God. We were separated because of our sin and wickedness, but we get to be with God. First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, to bring you to God. The gospel is that you and I get to be with God. The gospel isn't answering all your therapeutic problems, though it, that is a fruit of it. The gospel isn't that you're just, you get to go through life with peace, though that is a fruit of it. The gospel is that you are with God, your creator, your maker. That's the message. I know you want me to say that you're awesome, We all want to hear that. We all want to hear a message of like, you are awesome. We all want to hear that message, but you know it's not true. That's why you belong to a gym. That's why you eat kale. That's why you have a life coach. That's why you watch endless hours of TED Talks by the self-help gurus. That's why you have therapists. That's why you and I have to apologize to people we hurt even without knowing it because we're not awesome. We're wicked, and sin has separated us from God and others and has brought chaos to our planet. Now, let me say this. This is not where the story starts. Christians are infamous for starting the story there. there. You're wicked. You're like, wow, that's a great start to the story. When we, when we went through the book of Genesis last year, 
the story actually starts with peace, shalom. We were created to be in perfect loving connection with God, perfect and loving connection with each other in our environment. We all have echoes of the shalom of God. We all have, we all have a collective memory of the shalom of God. We all want peace because we remember that there actually was peace at one time. We were created to be stewards and creators with God over this earth, but something happened. What happened is the same thing that happens in our day, our everyday lives. We choose our own way. Proverbs 14, a collection of, of wisdom writings from the Old Testament says, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to us, but the end is the way to death. This is what has happened then, and this is what happens every day. And the message of the cross is that the anointed Messiah, the wisdom of God made flesh, King Jesus, was condemned as a common criminal to take our place because we've all robbed God of the glory due to him. That's the message of the cross that divides. Secondly, the message of the cross The Messiah, or the Logos, was willing to die. Christ was willing to die. No one took Jesus' life. He gave it freely. See, not only did Christ have to die to atone for our sins, but Christ was willing to die. Now, here's an important part of the message of the cross. We may be wicked beyond our knowledge to confess all our wickedness, but we are loved beyond our imagination to grasp how much God loves us. John 10, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. I lay my life down as a ransom. This humility of God, this foolishness to die on a cross was all done by God's willingness to love us, to triumph over the wisdom of the world, and to begin an epistemological revolution. I've always wanted to say that. (laughs) What the cross does, it reframes the entire world. It actually reframes the way that you and I see and relate to God. The cross reframes everything, meaning the way that we can really know knowledge is starting with the cross and its message. That's the way we can really know knowledge. And this is what Paul says. There's been an epistemological revolution. You want to know God? Start at the cross. Start there. And the message of the cross, what the cross says to us. And this is what the cross says. This is the message of the cross for everyone. Jesus had to die, but Jesus was willing to die. You are wicked, but you are loved. Do you see that? That's the message of the cross. Christ had to die. He was willing to die. You are wicked, but you are loved. Those messages collide at the cross. That's the message of the cross. But look at what Paul goes on to say about that, about this message. He says that this message divides humanity into two groups, perishing and being saved. No longer is the world divided by slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile, Roman and barbarian. The world is now divided by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Some commentators call this God's eschatological judgment on the world. This is now the new judgment of the world. There are two categories, not Jew and Gentile anymore, not slave and free anymore, perishing and those being saved. 
Society was anything but equal and classless in these days, and even today. However, the cross renders all of these divisions redundant and obsolete. Now, what perishing means is being ruined or destroyed, and it has a temporal reference. It actually reads like this, those who are in the process of perishing, rather than being a determinative statement. It actually means those, in the present tense, it means, it refers to those on the road to perishing. Those who reject the message of the gospel are on a road that's leading to, that's, that you are on a road perishing. But for those that have, God has called and those who have believed, Christ has saved us and we are being saved. Now that might throw you off a bit. You're going, well, I thought the Christian was saved. What do you mean being saved? There's three tenses of salvation that the New Testament talks about. It's you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You are saved, you're being saved, you will be saved. Let me use an illustration with you. Imagine uh, you're in a cruise liner, on a cruise liner, in a boat, a giant boat, in the middle of the ocean, which I told my wife I would never do. It's like, just sounds like a giant floating germ boat of doom or something. You know? I, just, I wouldn't do it. Maybe you do it, like that's what I do, that's my thing. Like, I would not, my wife just can't get me out there. So anyway, imagine you are, hard for me to imagine, but maybe, imagine you're in a, in a boat, a ship in the middle of the ocean, and the ship sinks, which happens. And, and imagine you get in a lifeboat, you are saved. But that lifeboat is moving towards land. You are being saved. And that lifeboat will hit land. You will be saved. You are saved, being saved, will be saved. Unless that lifeboat landed on the island of Lost, then we don't really know what happens. (laughs) But the illustration does break down at a certain level. But that's kind of what it's talking about. You're saved. You're in the lifeboat. I'm saved. I've been delivered from this ship going down, right? But you, this, ship, this little, little lifeboat's moving towards land. Oh, we're being saved, guys. I see land. And when you land there, we're saved. This is how the scriptures talk about salvation. The message of the cross divides into those on the road to perishing and those on the road to being saved. This is also an encouragement because though the Corinthians aren't fully there yet, And they think they are, but they're not. They think they're mature, but they're not. Paul says, hey, you're still being saved, buddy. Like, calm down. Don't think you've, uh, and he kind of taunts him a little bit later. He goes, oh, yes, you're so rich. You're so this. You're so amazing. He's like, no, you're not. You're still being saved. You still have a lot to learn. You still have a lot of maturity to grow in. The message of the cross puts humanity on two roads. This is not a cliche. This is what Paul is talking about, two roads. And the implications of what is being taught here is this. Which road are you on? Has God called you? Let me try to explain what that means. Have you sensed in your, could be your mind, your heart, your soul, your conscience that God is saying, believe me? And you think that voice is silly. You're like, oh my gosh, that's just here because I'm at church. But like you hear it, you're like, God's saying, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Turn from your sins, confess that and follow me. And you feel it, you're being called by God. 
And you might try to blow that off as like, well, I'm just here, that's why. I'm just here in this place. And, and, and what happens is you might even right now begin to connect all these dots in your life, how God has actually been calling you for a very long time. And it could be leading, leading right up to this moment. God is calling you. Now you believe in Christ. Those God has called Christ, the, the, the gospel, the cross, the message of the cross is the power of God to save you even right now. And there's no doubt in my mind that Christ can save you right this second as you open up your life to him. Like, I believe, I turn and I believe Christ, the power of God to save. Has God called you? Have you believed in the message of the gospel? Then you are being saved. You're on the road to being saved. If you are being saved, and if that's the road you're on, here's the implication. This is what Paul's getting at, and we don't have time to talk about all of it today. We'll unpack it next week. But Paul is saying now, embody that life. If you are being saved, embody the life of someone being saved. Embody that life. Here's what one commentator, uh, one commentary says about this. Paul's argument suggests that it is possible, although in reality highly inconsistent, to embrace the message of the cross as the basis of one's relationship with God in Christ while continuing to live in a way that rejects its lifestyle implications as foolishness, preferring to live according to the standards of human wisdom, as the Corinthians were guilty of doing. Now, let me, let me show, tell you what that means, and that's a very well-written um, sentence about what's going on here. It's basically saying, I'll believe the message that my God and Savior died to free me from sin and guilt and death and Satan, but I fundamentally reject the implications of taking up my own cross to follow Jesus. I won't take up my own cross to follow him. I will, still steep, I will keep seeking human approval and, and I will prefer to, to lead my life in measures of success such as money and sex and independence and self-expression and power and individuality. I will still define wisdom by those terms. In other words, I accept Christ, but I reject as foolishness the lifestyle implications, and I prefer to live according to the standards of human wisdom. That's how I live my life. But I'll accept your salvation, Jesus. I'll accept that you died on a cross, but I don't want any cross in my own life. You can have a cross, I have all glory. Paul's saying that this is not only inconsistent, but theologically and morally offensive. Paul's saying, even watch my own life. When I came to you, I came bearing the cross. I came not in human power and human wisdom. I came embodying the cross. The only thing that makes us worthy of coming to the cross is the awareness of our sin. If you think it's because of your influence in life, because of how, how your education or your job or what you've done or who you're dating or who you're married to or your looks or whatever, that is not. The only thing that makes us worthy of coming to the cross is not because we grew up in church, because we're baptized as young children. It's because of our awareness of sin. It's, an, it's understanding the way we see power and use power even after coming to the cross has no place there. And has no place in the lifestyle of the people of the cross. This is what Paul is getting at. Christianity is not a spirituality of ascent. Christianity is not moving upward and upward and upward where the cross is the starting point to awesomeness. 
And I know in Western Christianity that it sounds like that. That is not the cross. That is not the message of Christianity. Christianity is not a spirituality of ascent, but of descent. And this is why Paul doesn't contrast power of the cross with weakness. You notice that? He contrasts power of the cross with foolishness. He didn't say it's the power of God, but it's weakness, because what he knows is that weakness is the way to power. Weakness is the way that Christ was exalted as Savior of the world. Weakness, the Christian welcomes. Weakness and loss becomes an opportunity to gain Christ. And Paul says, I've lost it all so I can gain Christ. This is a theology of descent where we come to the cross together as brothers and sisters and say, the only thing that I can attribute to my salvation is my sin. That's what the cross says. That's the message of the cross, and that's where we start. And so church, if there's any way in your life that you are in subtle ways as a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, grabbing on to things of power once again, defining your life by the success of San Francisco and what San Francisco deems successful, if you're doing that once again, may I ask you and invite you to take that to the cross. Let's take that to the table of communion and repent and there be reminded once again the cross is the power of God. That message that we are wicked but we are loved, that Christ died but he was willing to die. May that redefine the way that we see success and power. May that redefine the way that we see the world. May that redefine the framework of our whole entire lives Let me pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the cross and the power of the cross, God. And I ask, God, that by the power of the message preached, not the preacher, not the way it was preached, but the power in in the essence of it, it would save. And maybe not even save for the first time, but maybe today we... We come back to the cross to, to be being saved, saved again, saved again, aware of our own struggle for power. I see that in my, even in my own heart, Lord, in my, in my relationships and in my marriage and, and in the city, just ways that I want to define success by the way that the city does. And that's not the way of the cross. May God this begin to reshape the way that we see service and love and community, and worship. May this room be filled with people who are self-giving, not self-centered. May the cross change the way that even knowledge is known. May it change the way that we relate to you, God. I pray that you would undo years of thinking the cross is the starting point to success. I pray that the cross would be where we live, where we visit often, where we come to daily. Thank you for the message of it. It's how we know you, how, that we're, how we're with God. Draw us right now. I pray that you would create in this place a sacred place for us to get right with you, for us to repent, for us to relate, 
for us to be with you right now, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that your presence would be here in a way where we feel safe to get prayer, to pray for another, to maybe lift our hands in worship and freedom for the first time, to kneel if we've never done that before. Maybe even to get in the lines of communion. I pray this place would be a, a safe place for that to happen where we can relate to you. In Jesus' name, amen.